Welcome. Um, So I think we have one father in the group. Uh, (laughs) But... um, No. No? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, in some sense, um, I'm going to wish all of you a happy Father's Day because we, we all carry our fathers in us, like it or not. Uh, for some of us, um, and so in some sense, you're representing your your father here today. Um, and even though, in I know, in some cases, um, we'd rather not. Um, um, it is an opportunity to recognize the sen- the the sense in which we are we are carrying. Uh, our parents within us and that that we can recognize that and honor that even though we may not want to celebrate it Um, but there is some sense in which we can do that as well Um, before diving into the fifth precept um, which is the precept about abstaining from intoxicants um, I want to um, by way of thanking you all for showing up uh, today. Um, It's always an effort, but on some days it's a greater effort than others, whether it be a holiday or a sunny day (laughs) or just a Sunday. Um, It takes effort. Uh, And so I'm grateful for that. And I'm I'm reminded of... um, something that uh, Garrison Keeler, who had a, a radio show called Prairie Home Companion, I don't know whether any of you remember that, um, but uh, it was very famous, a uh, very wonderful um, show on the radio in which he would talk about his, um, his home, home, Prairie, the Prairie Home Companion, and all the experiences that he had there. Um, And one of those really stuck with me. Um, He uh, he, he is from Minnesota, and it gets really, really cold in Minnesota in the winters, and lots and lots of storms. And he talked about um, a time in his childhood when this was before busing students from school to home, um, this, the, the students had to walk home in the elementary school, and I did too when I was in elementary school. There were no buses to take us, so it was a long walk. And he also had to walk home from school. In the winter, it was really difficult. Uh, I mean, little kids with their boots and hats and mittens and when the the storms were raging, uh, really cold, and and that was a, it was a difficult uh, difficult journey from school to home, and the town uh, decided to institute uh, what they called snow homes. So the ch- there was a sign in the window of these homes saying "snow home," and the children could stop at any of these homes along the way just to warm up, uh, to get some cookies and milk uh, or hot chocolate. And 
it was a beautiful gesture on the part of the people who were uh, part of that community to offer this to the children. And I was kind of very moved by that because it seemed to me that 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 was a form of refuge. Uh, And when we say, I take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, um, we could also say, I take refuge in the Zendo. (laughs) Uh, Because this is, this is kind of a snow home um, in which sort of, with all the storms of life, um, we can stop here. I mean, sometimes we have sushi and and cookies instead of uh, hot milk and hot chocolate, but we also have a sangha to welcome welcome people. Whether it's a um, a really raging storm of of life in which you know, really, really overwhelmed and blown by the winds of of experience, or whether it's just a small storm, you know, of just uh, misty rain, uh, but still kind of something you want to relieve yourself from for a while. You, you know, in those storms, those various levels of storms, you can come to Oan and find refuge. Um, But, of course, if nobody's home, the refuge doesn't feel as warm and as welcoming as if, you know, the children stopped off at this home and nobody was there. Maybe, like, you leave for Santa Claus, you know, some cookies and milk on the table. But it doesn't feel the same. So when people come to Oan... If nobody's home, if we're not here to welcome people, it's no longer a refuge. It's just a building. It's just a structure. So that I'm deeply grateful for you showing up uh, to offer refuge to others of us who come in. So... Part of our practice is just showing up to be a refuge for others. Okay. That. <laughs> That's a big thank you. Um, but it's, it's really important because I know each of you made an effort, uh, and, and we all do every week, to I, I want to affirm and confirm that effort and, and express gratitude for it. Um, We have been talking about the precepts because there are members of our Sangha who are receiving precepts. And when one member of Sangha receives precepts, all receive precepts, including me, who, I mean, this formally I have received precepts twice, and I will probably receive them again in a formal ceremony a third time. But the real receiving precepts is what we're doing here and what we do in our lives when we leave the Zendo. So this practice of becoming aware of precepts and, as it said, undertaking to practice 
with these precepts. It, 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 it's not said, you must do this from some higher authority. We undertake of our free will, not because anybody, a God is telling us we have to do this, other, otherwise we'll go to hell. Um, for some deep human reason, which I want to attribute to the, the bird of our Buddha nature who is always calling us, this is coming from us that we undertake to practice this because we want to serve all beings, because we want to relieve suffering, our own and others. This is the, the, the one of three dimensions of Buddhist practice, which is called shila. There's shila, samadhi, and prajna. And actually, many people think that shila, which is sometimes translated as morality, as ethics, um, they think, well, you know, that's kind of not that important. What's important is to come and sit and meditate and be focused and, and then to be enlightened and be wise and teach others. But actually, Sheila is the foundation of practice. And in many uh, classic Buddhic, Buddhist training, you don't meditate unless you've undertaken the precepts. That comes first. That if, if you haven't made a commitment to practice being a good person, sitting is meaningless. <laughs> I mean, what's the use of, of sitting? And what's the use of achieving wisdom if you're not a good person? And if you're not a good person and you're not practicing to be a good person then your sitting is going, to be, um, is going to be affected by your the absence of this moral sense, of this sense of wanting to be truly who you are. And Sheila is, is, is not, I think, not to be considered as moralistic, that is, you know, uh, if if you if you're not if you're not you're you know you're either good or evil, uh, that's really not what it's about. Sheila is about practicing getting in touch with your basic goodness. You're already, basically, fundamentally, good, but that gets covered over in all kinds of ways socially culturally, uh, in, in ego, with the, e the rising of ego and the demands of ego, all of that goodness gets blurred, gets concealed, gets buried. And so practicing Sheila is getting constantly getting back in touch with that basic goodness, that basic purity that we all share. And this is a constant practice because we're constantly being affected by our self-centeredness, 
by our cultural self-centeredness um, and all of the pressures that we have from external sources that we've internalized that keep us from getting in touch with that basic goodness. So two weeks ago, we, we spent two weeks on the precept of not lying. And I gave two talks on that precept. I really, I was telling the Sangha that to really understand these precepts, you should give a Dharma talk on, on them. Because that really makes you dig deep into what this means, what these mean. So I gave two talks, and I really deeply continue to explore these precepts. And a couple of days ago, I get a call on my cell phone. Didn't know the number, but I picked it up anyway. And it turns out that it was a call from somebody representing the Spikes, the baseball team that I had taken my family to see one of the games just to have some fun last summer. And they obviously had my number and called and were, how are you? Is this a good time to talk? <laughs> and I said, well, um, you know, yeah, what, what is it that you're calling about? Um, and he said, well, we know you visited the stadium last summer and did you have a good time and kind of trying to get me to talk about my experience. And I said, uh, are, are, you are you wanting to sell me some tickets? And he said, actually, yes. And I found myself saying, well, you know, I'm going to be out of town this summer and I won't be able to see the spikes play. Well, that was a lie. Here I gave two, you know, and, and this was an easy one. <laughs> this, this was easy. All I needed to say was, I'm really not interested in buying any tickets this year. Or, no thank you. Instead, I, for some reason, whipped up this lie for absolutely no good reason. I didn't, I didn't beat up on myself about it, but I was just kind of amazed that I, I, this was so easy for me to do, and I was considering what it would feel like, and I've been exploring this, in these easy places to say, no thank you. Uh, do you want to go out? Should I come over for a few hours and we, you know, have a meal together? No, thank you. With no excuse. Just, no, I'd rather not. Thanks. Without having to say, well, I have so much to do. And, you know, there are many things on my plate. And uh, my brother's coming next week. And, you know. No is a complete sentence. 
And it's, it can be a very honest sentence. We could add, no thank you. But somehow we feel we need to justify our talking on the phone. Um, well, I have to make dinner now, uh, or I have an appointment in about five minutes. Lie. Like, what the truth is, is I, I've, I think I've reached my limit of conversation right now. Um, can you understand that? Sure, because we all feel that periodically. So it's not just abstaining from lying, but practicing telling the truth. And, and these, are e- more, these are easy ones. Even the easy ones are hard. So what I'm, what I'm reiterating <laughs> is that these precepts are, are precepts that we practice with. We practice with them with no expectation that we are going to be perfect and that we're really going to be able to hold on to them and do them perfectly. But we become more and more aware, more and more aware of even these small, uh, these small times. And that awareness will be transformative. So that awareness that I let this opportunity to practice truth go has inspired me to try to experiment with telling the truth in these small ways. Seeing what happens. Will the world fall apart if I say, "Uh, Merit, I think that I want to end this conversation right now. Is that okay? See what happens. Okay, that's another basket. (laughs) Now we dive into, maybe I'm avoiding talking about the precept about intoxicants because that is one that a lot of people have trouble with. Oddly enough, People are, um, are reluctant to give up their intoxicants. It's, it seems like unreasonable. <laughs> An unreasonable. It doesn't seem to be on the same order as not lying and not stealing and not killing and not abusing sexuality. Giving up wine, giving up drugs, giving up LSD, you know, people say, I've had a great religious experience with LSD, you know, or mushrooms, or cocaine, or, and, you know, drinking wine? Come on. Uh, so, actually, some of my students who are interested in receiving precepts have a real aversion to that particular precept. They say, I cannot do that, and I will not do that. I will not give up drinking beer or wine or 
smoking pot every now and then. Uh, no, I'm just not going to do that. It was actually the one precept that I could take <laughs> when in 1994 I studied with Thich Nhat Hanh and he was offering precepts. And he said you could take one precept or you could take three precepts or you could take ten precepts. And I said, I think I can manage to take the one on intoxicants, because that I have a fighting chance of, of, of holding to that one. And I did. I did receive that precept. But it didn't turn out that it was easy for me to. It was easier than other ones, but it wasn't a piece of cake to, to do that one either. So this is an interesting precept to explore. And the, and the question rightfully asked is, what's wrong with drinking and smoking pot and taking other intoxicants? What's, what's wrong with that? Um, well, what would Buddha say? Um, and we can say a lot of, we can respond in a lot of different ways. And this is not an easy precept. None of them are, actually. But this, this one is, seems strange. If you think about the precepts relative to the suffering that is caused by uh, not practicing with them, not holding them as virtues. The suffering that is caused by intoxicants is enormous. Uh, I lived with an alcoholic for many years, and I can tell you that alcoholism is creates suffering not just for the individual, but for the family, for others who they come in contact with, and for society in general. Because, you know, how many, how many people are killed by drunk drivers? Um, how many families are ruined by people who are, uh, who are addicted to alcohol? Um, it's often said that if there's an alcoholic in the family, the whole family suffers. It's not just... And, and everyone around that person suffers. And so, in light of the suffering that is caused by intoxicants, one needs to perhaps take a stand in one's own life not just as a personal issue, which, of course, any form of clouding the mind can be seen as a form of suffering, uh, as a, allowing that, um, that lack of clarity to influence one's actions, and it can create a lot of distress. But to be able to say no thank you to a drink even when people are in a context of enjoying 
socializing and drinking, watching a football game, out at a bar, <clears throat> at someone's home at an elegant dinner and having wine, um, to be able to say, no thank you, or not even to, to even make it explicit, but just not, not to do it, as a way of acting not just for yourself, but for the larger community of life in which this substance creates a lot of distress, a lot of suffering. So rather than support it by drinking yourself, you, as an act of selflessness, say, this has created a lot of suffering and I don't want to participate in that in that situation. I don't want to affirm the, 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 the use of alcohol or the place of alcohol in our culture. And that goes, that's true for other, other intoxicants. Um, and of course, one of the questions is, what is an intoxicant? And as you dig deeper into this precept, and perhaps we'll have a chance to talk more about that. Is caffeine a toxicant and an intoxicant? My father was a compulsive gambler. Is gambling an intoxicant? Is television an intoxicant? What defines an is food an intoxicant? Any kind of food is is candy an intoxicant? So, one of the ways to approach this is to ask: Is an intoxicant a substance or an activity that dulls the mind? that transforms the mind from a clear, present uh, connection with each moment to some other takes you out of the moment, out of that clarity, into some other realm of experience. Um, People have told me that I am a much nicer person to be with when I've had two glasses of wine. I've said, you're much less serious, much, much easier to talk to, <laughs> much, much more enjoyable to be with, uh, much less inhibited. When I have two glasses of wine, which isn't very often because I don't really care for the taste of wine, but I don't feel like myself. I, I, I feel like I'm in some other, maybe more pleasant state of being, but it's very clear to me that I'm, I'm not clear as to what I'm doing and I'm not really present to the people that I'm with, that I'm in my own, I'm, I'm in my own world. 
And it may be that, and I'm, I'm sort of exploring all these different pathways from this precept, it may be that every form of intoxicant is a painkiller. I don't know. It strikes me that that may very well be the case of all kinds of pain, all kinds of pain. And in our practice, we don't run away from pain. We don't try to cover it over. We don't try to indulge in it. And we don't shut down on it. We engage it. So, we need to ask, and again, our, our, we, we, we undertake to practice with the precept of abstaining from intoxicants. What does that, what does that, there are so many elements of that. What's an intoxicant? What does it mean to abstain? A lot of people want to argue that Buddha's, Buddha's way is the middle way. So a lot of people want to interpret this precept as don't misuse intoxicants. You can take them, but don't misuse them. That's, that's a spin on this precept. What if we apply that moderation to the first four precepts? Well, we can kill in moderation. We can lie in moderation. Well, we can steal as long as we don't steal too much. <laughs> and as long you know, we can be unfaithful in sexual relations, but not with too many people. So just don't kill too many people and don't kill too few people. Kill just the right amount of people. I mean, that's... So is this precept... Does, do the precepts have a kind of absoluteness to them? Again, I mean, do they set the, the, the bar? Do they set the bar for us? And then we have to, we have to negotiate what how we practice with them. So there's a lot to be explored in this precept, and I'm sure, I'm sure we will take the opportunity to do that. We can talk some more about that um, at tea. But now, thank you. Return your cushions to their places.